Chapter 11, Learning from Adversity. Question, is failure ever a benefit to man? Yes, indeed, learning from adversity is the third of the seven principles. But few people know that every adversity brings with it the seed of an equivalent advantage. Still fewer people know the difference between temporary defeat and failure. If this knowledge were generally known, I would be deprived of one of my strongest weapons of control over human beings. But I understood you to say that failure is one of your greatest allies. I got the impression from your confession that failure causes people to lose ambition and quit trying, and then you take them over without opposition on their part. That is just the point. I take them over after they quit trying. If they knew the difference between temporary defeat and failure, they would not quit when they meet with opposition from life. If they knew that every form of defeat and all failures bring with them the seed of unborn opportunity, they would keep on fighting and win. Success usually is but one short step beyond the point where one quits fighting. Question, is that all one might learn from adversity, defeat, and failure? No, that is the least of what one might learn. I hate to tell you this, but failure often serves as a blessing in disguise because it breaks the grip of hypnotic rhythm and frees the mind for a fresh start. Question, now we're getting somewhere. So you have confessed at long last that even nature's law of hypnotic rhythm can be and often is annulled by nature herself. Is that correct? Answer, no, that is not stating the matter accurately. Nature never reverses any of her natural laws. Nature does not take away a human being's freedom of thought through hypnotic rhythm. The individual gives up his freedom by abuse of this law. If a man jumped from a tree and was killed by the sudden impact of his body with the earth through the law of gravity, you wouldn't say nature murdered him, would you? You would say the man neglected to relate himself properly to the law of gravity. Question. I am beginning to see. The law of hypnotic rhythm is capable of both negative and positive application. It may drag one down to slavery through loss of the privilege of freedom of thought, or it may help one rise to great heights of achievement through the free use of thought, depending on how the individual relates himself to the law. Is that correct? Now you have it right. But what about failure? One does not fail intentionally with purpose aforethought. No one encourages temporary defeat. These are circumstances over which the individual often has no control whatsoever. How then can it be said that nature does not take away one's freedom of thought when failure destroys ambition, willpower, and the self-confidence essential to make a fresh start? Answer. Failure is a man-made circumstance. It is never real until it has been accepted by man as permanent. Stating it another way, failure is a state of mind. Therefore, it is something an individual can control until he neglects to exercise this privilege. Nature does not force people to fail. But nature does impose her law of hypnotic rhythm upon all minds and through this law gives permanency to the thoughts which dominate those minds. In other words, failure thoughts are taken over by the law of hypnotic rhythm and made permanent if the individual accepts any circumstances as being permanent failure. That same law just as readily takes over and makes permanent thoughts of success. Question. What part, then, does failure play in helping an individual break the grip of hypnotic rhythm after that law has been fastened upon his mind? Answer. Failure brings a climax in which one has the privilege of clearing his mind of fear and making a new start in another direction. 
Failure proves conclusively that something is wrong with one's aims or the plans by which the object of these aims is sought. Failure is the dead end of the habit path one has been following, and when it is reached, it forces one to leave that path and take up another, thereby creating a new rhythm. But failure does more than this. It gives an individual an opportunity to test himself, wherein he may learn how much willpower he possesses. Failure also forces people to learn many truths they would never discover without it. Failure often leads an individual to an understanding of the power of self-discipline, without which no one could turn back after having once been the victim of hypnotic rhythm. Study the lives of all people who achieve outstanding success in any calling and observe with profit that their success is usually in exact ratio to their experiences of defeat before succeeding. Question. Is this all you have to say of the advantages of failure? No, I have barely begun. If you want the real significance of adversity, failure, defeat, and all other experiences which break up a human being's habits and force him to form new habits, watch nature at her work. Nature uses illness to break the physical rhythm of the body when the cells and organs become improperly related. She uses economic depressions to break the rhythm of mass thought when great numbers of people become improperly related through business, social, and political activities. And she uses failure to break the rhythm of negative thought when an individual becomes improperly related to himself in his own mind. Observe carefully, and you will see that everywhere in nature there is always at work a natural law which gives eternal change to all matter, all energy, and to the power of thought. The only permanent thing in the universe is change, eternal, inexorable change, through which every atom of matter and every unit of energy has the opportunity to properly relate itself to all other units of matter and energy, and every human being has the opportunity and the privilege of properly relating himself to all other human beings, no matter how many mistakes he makes, or how many times or in what ways he may be defeated. When mass failure overtakes a nation, such as the 1929 World Business Depression, the circumstance is in perfect harmony with nature's plan to break up man's habits and give out fresh opportunities. Question. What you are saying intrigues me. Am I to understand that hypnotic rhythm has something to do with the way people relate themselves to one another? Answer. That abstract, elusive thing called character is nothing but a manifestation of the law of hypnotic rhythm. Therefore, when speaking of one's character, it would be proper to say his thought habits have been crystallized into a positive or a negative personality through hypnotic rhythm. One is good or bad because of the knitting together of his thoughts and deeds through hypnotic rhythm. One is bound by poverty or blessed with abundance because his aims, plans, and desires, or lack of them, have been made permanent and real by hypnotic rhythm. Question. Is that all you have to say of the connection between hypnotic rhythm and human relationships? No, I have just begun. Remember, while I am talking, I am speaking of the influence of hypnotic rhythm in connection with all human relationships. Men who succeed in business do so entirely because of the way they relate themselves to their associates and to others outside of the business. Professional men who succeed do so largely because of the manner in which they relate themselves to their clients. It is much more important for the lawyer to know people and to know the laws of nature than it is to know the law. And the doctor is a failure before he starts unless he knows how to relate himself to his patients so as to establish their faith in him. 
Marriage succeeds or fails entirely because of the manner in which the participants relate themselves to one another. Proper relationship in marriage begins with the proper motive for the marriage. Most marriages do not bring happiness because the contracting parties neither understand nor attempt to understand the law of hypnotic rhythm through the operation of which every word they speak, every act in which they engage, and every motive by which they are inspired to deal with each other is picked up and woven into a web that entangles them in controversial misery or gives to them the wings of freedom through which they soar above all forms of unhappiness. Every newly made acquaintanceship between people ripens into friendship and then into spiritual harmony, sometimes called love, or plants a germ of suspicion and doubt which evolves and grows into open rebellion according to the way in which the participants in the acquaintanceship relate themselves to one another. Hypnotic rhythm picks up the dominating motives, aims, purposes, and feelings of the contracting minds and weaves these into some degree of faith or fear, love or hatred. After the pattern has taken definite shape, as it does with time, it is forced upon the contracting minds and made a part thereof. In this silent way does nature make permanent the dominating factors of every human relationship. In every human relationship, the evil motives and the evil deeds of the contacting individuals are coordinated and consolidated into definite form and subtly woven into that all-important human trait known as character. In the same manner, the motives and the deeds of good are consolidated and forced upon the individual. You see, therefore, it is not only one's deeds, but also one's very thoughts which determine the nature of all human relationships. Question. You are leading into pretty deep water. Let's keep near the shore where I can follow you without fear of getting beyond a safe depth. Go ahead and tell me how this subject of human relationships actually works in the current affairs of a problem-filled world such as we have today. Answer. That is a happy thought. But let me make sure you understand the principles I am telling about before I try to show you how to apply them in the affairs of life. I wish to be sure you understand that the law of hypnotic rhythm is something that no one can control, influence, or evade. But everyone can relate himself to this law so as to benefit by its inexorable operation. Harmonious relationship with the law consists entirely of the individual changing his habits so they represent the circumstances and the things the individual wants and is willing to accept. No one can change the law of hypnotic rhythm any more than one can change the law of gravity, but everyone can change himself. Remember, therefore, in all the discussion of this subject that all human relationships are made and maintained by the habits of the individuals related. The law of hypnotic rhythm plays only the part of solidifying the factors which constitute human relationships, but it does not create those factors. Before we go further with the discussion of human relationships, I want you to get a clear understanding of the subconscious mind. The term subconscious mind represents a hypothetical physical organ which has no actual existence. The mind of man consists of universal energy, some call it infinite intelligence, which the individual receives, appropriates, and organizes in definite thought forms through the network of intricate physical apparatus known as a brain. These thought forms are replicas of various stimuli which reach the brain through the five commonly known physical senses and the sixth sense, which is not so well known. When any form of stimuli reaches the brain and takes the definite shape of thought, it is classified and stored away in a group of the brain cells known as the memory group. 
All thoughts of a similar nature are stored together so that the bringing forth of one leads to easy contact with all its associates. The system is very similar to the modern office filing cabinet, and it's operated in a similar manner. The thought impressions with which one mixes the greatest amount of emotion or feeling are the dominating factors of the brain because they are always near the surface, at the top of the filing system, so to speak, where they spring into action voluntarily the moment an individual neglects to exercise self-discipline. These emotion-laden thoughts are so powerful they often cause an individual to rush into action and indulge in deeds which have not been submitted to nor approved by his reasoning faculty. These emotional outbursts usually destroy harmony in all human relationships. The brain often brings together combinations of emotional feelings so powerful they completely set aside the control of the reasoning faculty. On all such occasions, human relationships are apt to be lacking in harmony. Through the operation of the sixth sense, the brain of a human being may contact the filing cabinet of other brains and inspect at will whatever thought impressions are on file there. The condition under which one person may contact and inspect the filing cabinet of another person's brain is generally known as harmony, but you may better understand what is meant if I say brains attuned to the same rate of thought vibrations can easily and quickly exercise the privilege of entering and inspecting each other's filing cabinets of thoughts. In addition to receiving organized thoughts from the filing cabinets of other brains through the sixth sense, one can, through this same physical organ, contact and receive information from the universal storehouse known as infinite intelligence. All information reaching one's brain through the sixth sense comes from sources not easily isolated or traced. Therefore, this sort of information is generally believed to come from one's subconscious mind. The sixth sense is the organ of the brain through which one receives all information, all knowledge, all thought impressions which do not come through one or more of the five physical senses. Now that you understand how the mind operates, you will more easily understand how and why people come to grief through improper human relationships. You will also understand how human relationships may be made to yield riches in their highest form, riches in material, mental, and spiritual estates. Moreover, you will understand there can never be happiness except through understanding and application of the right principles of human relationships. You will understand, too, that no individual is an entity unto himself, that completeness of mind can be attained only by harmony of purpose and deed between two or more minds. You will understand why every human being should, of his own choice, become his brother's keeper in fact as well as in theory. Question. What you say may be true, but I still insist that you have me beyond safe depths of thought. Let us get back nearer to the shore where I can wade in familiar water. We shall go out into the deeper water after we learn to swim well. We started out to discuss the subject of how to profit by adversity, but it seems we've drifted somewhat afield from that subject. Answer. We have detoured, but we have not drifted. The devil never drifts. The detour was necessary in order that you might be prepared to understand the most important part of this entire interview. We are now ready to get back to the discussion of the subject of adversity. Inasmuch as most adversities grow out of improper relationships between people, it seems important to understand how people may become properly related. Naturally, the question arises as to what is a proper relationship between people. The answer is that the proper relationship is one that brings to all connected with it, or affected by it, some form of benefit. Question. 
What then is an improper relationship? Answer. Any relationship between people which damages anyone or brings any form of misery or unhappiness to any of the individuals. How can improper relationships be corrected? By change of mind of the person causing the improper relationship or by changing the persons to the relationship. Some minds harmonize naturally while others just as naturally clash. Successful human relationships, to endure as such, must be formed of minds that naturally harmonize, quite aside from the question of having common interests as a means of bringing them into harmony. When you speak of business leaders who succeed because, quote, they know how to pick men, you might more correctly say they succeed because they know how to associate minds which harmonize naturally. Knowing how to pick people successfully for any definite purpose in life is based upon ability to recognize the types of people whose minds naturally harmonize. Question. Stay focused on adversity, if you will. If there are possible benefits to be found through adversity, name some of them. Answer. Adversity relieves people of vanity and egotism. It discourages selfishness by proving that no one can succeed without the cooperation of others. Adversity forces an individual to test his mental, physical, and spiritual strength. It thus brings him face-to-face -face with his weaknesses and gives him the opportunity to bridge them. Adversity forces one to seek ways and means to definite ends by meditation and introspective thought. This often leads to the discovery and use of the sixth sense through which one may communicate with infinite intelligence. Adversity forces one to recognize the need for intelligence not available except from sources outside of one's own mind. Adversity breaks old habits of thought and gives one an opportunity to form new habits. Therefore, it may serve to break the hold of hypnotic rhythm and change its operation from negative to positive ends. Question. What is the greatest benefit one may receive through adversity? Answer. The greatest benefit of adversity is that it may, and generally does, force one to change one's thought habits, thus breaking and redirecting the force of hypnotic rhythm. Question. In other words, failure always is a blessing when it forces one to acquire knowledge or to build habits that lead to the achievement of one's major purpose in life. Is that correct? Answer. Yes, and something more. Failure is a blessing when it forces one to depend less upon material forces and more upon spiritual forces. Many human beings discover their, quote, other selves, the forces which operate through the power of thought, only after some catastrophe deprives them of the full and free use of their physical bodies. When a man can no longer use his hands and his feet, he usually begins to use his brain. Thus, he puts himself in the way of discovering the power of his own mind. Question. What benefits may be derived from the loss of material things, money, for example? Answer. The loss of material things may teach many needed lessons. None greater, however, than the truth that man has control over nothing and has no assurance of the permanent use of anything except his own power of thought. Question. I wonder if this is not the greatest benefit available through adversity. Answer. No. The greatest potential benefit of any circumstance which causes one to make a fresh start is that it provides an opportunity to break the grip of hypnotic rhythm and set up a new set of thought habits. New habits offer the only way out for people who fail. Most people who escape from the negative to the positive operation of the law of hypnotic rhythm do so only because of some form of adversity which forces them to change their thought habits. Question. 
isn't adversity apt to break one's self-reliance and cause one to give up hope? Answer. It has that effect on those whose willpower is weak through long-established habits of drifting. It has the opposite effect on those who have not been weakened through drifting. The non-drifter meets with temporary defeat and failure, but his reaction to all forms of adversity is positive. He fights instead of giving up and usually wins. Life gives no one immunity against adversity, but life gives to everyone the power of positive thought, which is sufficient to master all circumstances of adversity and convert them into benefits. The individual is left with the privilege of using or neglecting to use his prerogative right to think his way through all adversities. Every individual is forced either to use his thought power for the attainment of definite positive ends, or by neglect or design, use this power for the attainment of negative ends. There can be no compromise, no refusal to use the mind. The law of hypnotic rhythm forces every individual to give some degree of use, either negative or positive, to his mind, but it does not influence the individual as to which use he will make of his mind. Question. Am I to understand from what you say that every adversity is a blessing? Answer. No, I did not say that. I said there is the seed of an equivalent advantage in every adversity. I did not say there was the full-blown flower of advantage, just the seed. Usually the seed consists of some form of knowledge, some idea or plan, or some opportunity which would not have been available except through the change of thought habits forced by the adversity. Question. Are those all the benefits available to human beings through failure? Answer, no. Failure is used by nature as a common language in which she chastises people when they neglect to adapt themselves to her laws. For example, the world war was man-made and destructive. Nature planted in the circumstances of the war the seed of an equivalent reprimand in the form of a world depression. The depression was inevitable and inescapable. It followed the war as naturally as day follows night, and by the operation of the self-same law, the law of hypnotic rhythm. Question. Am I to understand that the law of hypnotic rhythm is the same as that which Ralph Waldo Emerson called the law of compensation? Answer. The law of hypnotic rhythm is the law of compensation. It is the power with which nature balances negative and positive forces throughout the universe, in all forms of energy, in all forms of matter, and in all human relationships. Question. Does the law of hypnotic rhythm operate quickly in all instances? For example, does this law immediately bless one with the benefits of positive application of thoughts, or curse one immediately with the results of negative thoughts? Answer. The law operates definitely, but not always swiftly. Both the benefits and the penalties incurred by the law by individuals may be harvested by others, either before or after their death. Observe how this law works by forcing upon one generation of people the effects of both the sins and the virtues of preceding generations. In the operation of all of nature's laws, the fourth dimension, time, is an inexorable factor. The length of time consumed by nature in the relation of effects to their causes depends in every instance on the circumstances at hand. Nature grows a pumpkin in three months. A good-sized oak tree requires a hundred years. She converts a hen's egg into a chicken in four weeks, but she requires nine months to convert the egg of a human being into an individual.